You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former CISA director Christopher Krebs joins the Washington Post to discuss his role in the 2020 election and the cyber threats facing the country. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for the Washington Post. And today it's my pleasure to welcome Christopher Krebs, the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS. And it's fair to say one of the heroes in protecting the security of our 2020 election. Uh, Chris, welcome. Thanks for watching. So, Chris, let's be begin with, with your story. Uh, you began uh, preparing for a secure election back in February. And I remember talking with you in August for a column at a time when President Trump was warning about uh, the danger of fraud because of mail-in voting. And you told me in an on-the-record interview back then that this election would be slower to tabulate uh, because of all the absentee votes, but that it would be safe and secure. And I want to ask you, did you get any pushback from the White House back then, unhappiness that you were contradicting the president in effect? Well, David, let me let me um, actually frame this in terms of, of time and history. We've actually been preparing for, we had been preparing for a secure 2020 election frankly, since the day I walked in the door of 2017 at the Department of Homeland Security. Now, I didn't fully appreciate uh, the level of work this was going to take and the amount of coordination back then, nor did I anticipate that it would take up as much time, frankly, that it ultimately did. But uh, this has been uh, an effort three, three and a half years in the making, not just at CISA, uh, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, but it was a whole of nation effort. And that is a term that, that gets bandied about sometimes and, and, a, uh, you know, and looked down upon, but this was truly state and local governments out in front with the full national security apparatus behind them, supporting them, the Department of Defense, the intelligence community, and the law enforcement. And so as we rolled into 2020, uh, also, you know, we don't, we didn't, you know, in January, February, I don't think fully appreciated the complexities and challenges that we would face, uh, principally from from COVID. And so there was a dramatic shift starting in the primaries uh, back in the spring uh, across the country. And many of those shifts involved uh, a, a, a greater uptick in voting by mail. And what we did was take a, a hard look at what are the additional security risks, the, the cyber and physical security risks, uh, associated with with voting by mail, and we found that that there was not a significant increase of risk. There was perhaps a transfer of risk because you had different parties involved, but there was no significant increase. Now, the narrative, though, at the time was that it was uh, that voting by mail could lead to additional fraud, and that is an issue uh, that's left to the law enforcement community, federal, state, and local. And uh, that was what we were hearing at the time is there was concern over fraud. And, you know, when you when you put security and fraud up against each other, they're two different things. And, and so there, there was a little bit of a perhaps dissonance in the in the, mis in the messaging. But, you know, we we stood by our, our security assessment. Uh, we didn't make any changes uh, and we kept all of our information available to our state and local partners. D dissonance is putting it mildly. It was pretty 
strong uh, argument from the White House that that uh, fraud uh, was was a huge risk in in this election. One of the innovations, Chris, that you had uh, at CISA uh, was uh, regular postings that you called rumor control, where there'd be rumors about the dangers of of, of, of fraud, the risks of of mail-in voting, and you'd put up. Uh, the 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 reality, as you as you'd say, you would put the reality on top of the rumor. Uh, I, I've heard and written in the post that there was some effort by the White House to to see if some of that content could be taken down. Uh, t- tell us a little bit about that and how you how you managed to keep that rumor control program intact. So the concept behind rumor control was an additive feature because we had been focusing, again, over that three and a half years through a range of scenarios to harden and improve the cybersecurity of these systems. But there's a second aspect. So we're not just doing the actual security improvement. We are also depending, uh, defending rather against what's known as a perception hack, where an adversary of whatever origin could say that a system was compromised or an insignificant event has a greater impact or implication than it actually does. And and again, the concept behind rumor control was to get the facts out there on how systems work and how, for instance, election night reporting are not official results. So if you see changes in uh, the amount of 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 numbers posted, whether it was you know alleged massive dumps or whatever. It is not the actual votes themselves that are uh, being adjusted. It's unofficial information and that the, the ballots and particularly the paper ballots continue on. And so we were on a regular basis seeing disinformation and claims of uh, improprieties or, or other things associated with the voting process on the security side, not, not on the fraud side. We, we, we dipped our toe in the water on the fraud side more just to explain the security controls in place if dead voters, you know, these claims of dead voters, we said, described what states and locals use on signature verifications. They they look at death records. They look at all those sorts of things and, and social security numbers. Uh, but again, it was more about getting information out there on the security controls at all steps of the voting process before, during, and after. And so in part to inoculate the American voter against the claims that were emerging and claims that we frankly anticipated coming out. Is it is it fair, Chris, to, to say that the president's repeated tweets, there must have been dozens of them, uh, uh, warning about, about fraud and mail-in voting, amounted to a kind of perception hack, in your words? I certainly think that it's um, without a lot of evidence some of the claims that we're hearing out there, whether it's just from the fever swamp or from some of the the advocates for uh, the campaign, um, we they were not in line with our understanding and our state and local partners' understanding of how these systems work and how the election machines, the equipment, the counting process, the canvas process, the audits, the the recounts, the certifications. Again, we had confidence because. There is no single point of failure related to technology, uh, whether it's software or hardware, it's a concept known as software independence. But there are all these resilience measures in place. And, and really the, the best one that, that's out there is, is paper, paper ballots. I've talked about that all week. Uh, and so again, we just kept putting the facts out there. And, and what I said, my team, is if you get any pushback from anywhere else, I'm, I'm the Senate confirmed head of the agency. 
I approve the content that goes up. And if there's anyone that has any concerns with uh, with what's up there, they need they need to come talk to me. And then, uh, Chris, we came to a decisive moment about 10 days after the election. Uh, on November 14, the president was retweeting claims that a company called Dominion Voting Systems uh, had been involved in massive fraud. And your agency, obviously at your direction, uh, issued a, a statement that was that was important. Uh, I'm just briefly going to going to going to uh, note it. Um, uh, that there is no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or in any way compromised the outcome. That statement got you fired three days later. And I assume when you made that statement, you knew that that was a possibility. So that, that statement was about uh, five, yeah, I got fired five days and about uh, three hours after that statement came out. It was, it really was released on the 12th of uh, November, and it was not me. It was not CISA as an agency releasing that statement. It was the election security community. It was the members of our uh, sector coordinating councils and our government coordinating councils, which is, which is just kind of CISA speak for the groups that we pull together that we convene to ensure that these things are secure. And so it was the perspective of all involved at the state local level, the private sector across the federal government of what they had seen. And not just in that intervening nine days since November 3rd, that was our understanding of the facts on the ground going back years. We, we had been watching, we had been monitoring, we'd had the intelligence community out there looking for bad guys, trying to do bad things and stopping them when, when they could. And so that was a, a true sense of the community that, that we issued. And it was important, I think, as um, those closest involved to the administration of the election and securing the election, to put that statement and some facts out there, again, to the American people. Now, I've said it before, you know, whether I thought I was going to get fired because of that statement, I, I don't know if it crossed my mind. I don't. It was the right thing to do. We needed to get information out there from the experts. Uh, let's talk about some other heroes who stood up to pressure and, and, and did the right thing in protecting our election security. Uh, I'd be interested in knowing uh, who's on your list, uh, Chris. Certainly, uh, Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, comes to mind for me. But you've been dealing with officials around the country. Maybe you could just give us a couple of snapshots of people you think really served the country well in this period. It is, uh, it's a hard list to, to tick off right now, uh, in part because there are tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans that support the administration of elections. Yes, there are some leaders in the space, typically secretaries of state, and I've talked about all the folks um, you know, that are in the swing states and, and are under the microscope right now, Secretary Bachbar in Pennsylvania, Secretary Benson in Michigan, Secretary Hobbs, out in Arizona, Secretary Sagaski in, in Nevada. And I, I've made the point, all strong women that are standing up, that are putting country over party and are ensuring that this democratic process goes forward. I saw last night, uh, Gabe Sterling down in Georgia, who was responsible for the election, you know, the, the administration part, uh, got up and, you know, he'd had a staffer, a contract staffer that was receiving death threats. You know, I've received death threats. A number of these officials have received death threats. And to me, 
It's just, I mean, there really aren't good words to describe just how un-American and undemocratic it is that the actual individuals that are responsible for the process of, of this most sacred democratic institution of elections are the ones that are getting uh, getting the, the, the blowback here. And, and it's chilling in, to me in two ways. First is that we're actively undermining democracy. We're actively undermining confidence in the electoral process. Second piece is, second chilling effect is that how the heck are we going to recruit election workers and election administration officials going forward if they think they're going to get death threats online and, and, and in person? Uh, this has got to stop. It has to stop. We have to let the professionals do their jobs. And it's, it's be well beyond time for everyone on both sides of the political spectrum to call for an end and to call for this, to our process, our certification process, and moving on into the next administration. That's a, a powerful statement. Uh, as you know, Joe DeGeneva, who's been identified as a member of the Trump legal team, uh, said on, on Monday that he thought you should be taken out and shot, and then later said he, he only made the comment in jest. You said yesterday morning, on the NBC Today show that you were considering legal action uh, after that comment. Tell us a little more about that. What, how can you protect yourself against, against threats like that, whether seemingly in jest or not? How, how do you go forward legally? So, you know, I think the first thing is that, you know, in times like this, you really find out who your friends are and who's there behind you. And I've just got to thank everyone that's been so supportive, uh, really just coming out of the woodwork. And it's been universal, uh, both sides of the aisle. So I, I, it, in, in bigger than that, it's the tech community uh, as whole has been just incredibly supportive. And I, I want to thank them directly. Now, as for uh, my legal options, I'm not going to litigate this in, in, you know, on TV and in, in, in a, in a, you know, in a parking lot somewhere. My lawyers will do the talk and they'll do it in court. And I got a lot of confidence. They're an outstanding team that knows how to win. And like I said yesterday, they're going to be busy. So uh, Attorney General Barr said uh, yesterday that, uh, in his words, he has not seen fraud on a scale that could have affected a different outcome in the election. And a lot of us read that and, and, and wondered, OK, is that it? Is this over? Do we finally have a, enough of a consensus among sen senior administration officials, among Republicans, that we, that we can say we're now heading toward a, a, a successful transition? What was your reaction to the bar statement? I, you know, that, that's his job to talk about fraud and to give a kind of sense of the, you know, what the temperature is out there. Um, and so it was consistent with my understanding. It was consistent with my conversations with both the law enforcement community and the election officials across the country. And so to me, it was in, in some sense uh, confirmation and affirmation of, of, of what we had what we understood to be taken. But that's his job to talk about it. I also think that it's it's temporal. It's a sense you know, of today or, or leading up to when he made that statement. And and if more evidence is out there, then then folks will bring that forward. And, and they'll investigate. But, but again, I think it's consistent with everything that we've thought about fraud for, for years and years. And so uh, I, I think it's just a, it's a good, perhaps a coda uh, of, of the controversies out there and we just need to move forward. 
speaking of, of Bard, during the election campaign, he made himself repeated statements about the dangers of fraud because of, of mail-in voting. That can't have been helpful to your work of trying to control rumors and run an orderly election. So, so again, I think it's important to distinguish between cybersecurity and security and supply chain issues related with the administration of an election, particularly the technology involved, and fraud issues. Fraud is something that for the law enforcement community. Now, there were some claims that we thought were a little, uh, you know, out uh, beyond uh, belief of foreign adversaries printing out ballots and mailing them in from St. Petersburg or Tehran or wherever. You know, again, this goes to something that we've been trying to reinforce over and over is just the security controls in place at all points in that technology. Election administrators, uh, administrators use technology to increase access to the ballot box and use technology to increase accuracy of the results. They also understand, though, that technology cannot be a single point of failure. And so there are controls at all times before, during and after. And again, what we saw down in Georgia with paper where there was a hand recount where the outcome was consistent to the machine count, it's just evidence that the controls in place work. You, you uh, were clear uh, this morning in your article in the Washington Post about how important paper ballots and, and the redundancy of systems uh, has been in providing us a reliable uh, outcome. What if we hadn't had that re redundancy and we'd had these these kinds of charges, uh, would, would we be in a, a, a much more precarious situation, do you think, without the additional systems? David, don't, don't put that evil on me. I don't want to even think <laughs> about that. I think what, what's, what we need to be doing now is thinking about the future and how we continue to invest in democracy. The, the key distinction here is that in 2016, the numbers I've thrown around, and they're based on uh, both uh, the Brennan Center as well as the Center for Election Innovation and Research, there was anywhere from 75% to 82%. I historically say 82%. It's hard to really get that, that ground truth on what the real number is. But anyway, anywhere between 75 to 82% of the vote was cast uh, ca in the 2016 were cast with uh, a paper uh, auditable, voter verifiable paper audit trail. And we, we believe that that number was on the order of about 95% for uh, the 2020. To me, what we need to be focusing on is how do we close out that last 5%? The trends are already there. The vendors aren't selling those paperless systems really anymore. So this, the state of Louisiana, how do we help them get over the, 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 the hump here? How do we help Texas and Indiana and Tennessee that still have those systems? How do we help New Jersey that, that had switched to mail-in but still has these systems? That's to me is, is the real question. I think Congress needs to prioritize from a risk management grant funding perspective, just complete eradication and elimination of those systems across the country. Chris, let's talk about what we imagined a year ago would be the real threat to the integrity of our election, and that was foreign interference. There have been relatively few reports of interference in the 2020 election by uh, Russia or Iran, uh, but you, you're the person who has the, the most knowledge about this. Were there moments when uh, an adversary 
appeared to be getting inside our election systems where you had to scramble the troops, as it were, to make sure that the, the systems were protected. So I, I wouldn't say that I'm the person that knows the most about this. You know, I had I had a pretty good insight and um, I'm not going to talk clearly uh, about classified information here. But what we saw, what we planned for was a range of actors from Russia, Iran, China, North Korea and cyber criminals seeking to inter interfere with the election. And so we had a pretty comprehensive set of scenarios that we baseline against. And I'm the type that, you know, does never gets comfortable, always is thinking forward, forward, you know, you could call it paranoid. Uh, but but we had a range of scenarios. And so what we saw in the run up to the 2020 was actually a fairly quiet election foreign interference landscape. And, and that could be due to any number of re reasons. Uh, I think part of it is that we had almost four years to prep. The last administration had about four months. And prep, you can't buy that time. You can't really find any other substitute. So, so we, we had more visibility. We were looking over there. We were hardening systems here. What we did see, though, was Iran try to make a play in mid to late uh, October. Uh, you may recall those emails that were purportedly from the Proud Boys. They did some scanning and, and got some, some state election uh, websites to spit out some, some voter data. Um, and so we were really trying to, to get ahead of that, put information out there to the American people through rumor control that if you see voter information out there, it's not always because a system was hacked. Now, the other aspect of this is we did see Russia um, over the course of the, the late fall make uh, they were undertaking a really broad scanning campaign and that's what russia does so this wasn't just state local uh, just elections it was state local private sector federal government agencies and just out of an abundance of transparency and out of an abundance of caution where we did see them land into uh two voter uh, or election systems or election um that had systems that had election information, not the voting systems themselves. We we felt that it was important to disclose that and share that with the American people. But that that was a much much broader uh, Russian cyber campaign uh, and scanning campaign that's that's as far as I can tell still underway. So Chris, let's talk about how to build greater trust in this system going forward. Uh, you had a lot of success. Uh, and as you said, this was the most secure election in our history, in your words. Uh, but even so, uh, polls show that as many as 80 percent of Republicans uh, think that fraud was involved. And uh, one poll said that only 29 percent of Republicans believe that Joe Biden was fairly elected. And, and so I want to ask you, you've described yourself as a lifelong Republican. How do we get those 80% of Republicans to have more confidence in the system? So th this is challenging, right? There, there are a couple different aspects of this, uh, three at least. One is that we need uh, both parties to, to just cut it out and come clean and, and, and acknowledge that this was a legitimate election and we need to move forward. The second thing I, need we, I think we need to do is continue to invest in democracy. Uh, we need to have uh, more upgrade, you know, grant funding going out there on a consistent basis to both retire those old systems as well as invest in more modern uh, technology and upgrades. And then we also need to uh, be able to incentivize innovation, and that includes more 
uh, uh, post-election audits. And it's those sorts of things, you know, more paper, more post-election audits that give transparency and an evidence-based uh, approach to elections. And then the third thing is that, you know what, it's unfortunate, but I don't feel as if, you know, Americans really think much about elections and how they happen other than every four years, maybe every two years. So uh, civic education has to get back on the books. We've got to get more folks and we got to make it easier to access how elections work. And, and again, you know, we talked about it all throughout the election is, is Trusted Info 2020. That was the campaign that the secretaries of state and the secretaries or the, the state election directors had launched. If you want to know more about elections, reach out to your local so, elections. Chris, director. what would be your uh, brief uh, advice to the incoming uh, administration of President-elect Biden and to the person that he has uh, chosen as his head of uh, Homeland Security, uh, Ally Mayorkas, in terms of, of thinking about uh, election security and then the broader mission of cybersecurity that your agency was charged with overseeing? What, what would you like to see them do? Well, continue the vision. And first, the secretary uh, nominee, Mayorkas, is fantastic, a great pick. Uh, we have to continue investing in public-private partnerships, and that's also kind of one of those D.C. bureaucratic terms. But we, I'm telling you, what we did for election security across the entire interagency with the intelligence community, the law enforcement community, Department of Defense, with the civilian agency, CISA, and our state and local partners, we, we cracked the code. We figured out how to truly work together from a cybersecurity perspective, and we found the holy grail in information sharing. That's another bureaucratic term in DC, but on election day, a state reported to us that they were seeing some scanning trying to exploit a vulnerable system. Now the state was able to, to knock it down, uh, but they reported that to us. We passed that over to one of our federal partners and they did what they do. And that's, that's never happened like that. Defense uh, in near real time. We need to break that down, the successes, whatever we caught, lightning in a bottle, and then replicate it. We're doing it right now, or they're doing it right now for Operation Warp Speed and the vaccine development. This can work. Collective defense is a concept and in practice can work. We have to continue to invest in that. Balance defense and offense investment primarily. Were you satisfied, Chris, with the performance of the social media platforms, uh, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and do you think they behaved in a responsible way that added to the security and safety of the election? So in terms of what we saw, certainly from a foreign interference perspective, I think the social media platforms deserve a lot of credit. And the proof is not just in the things I say, but you look in the behavior of the adversary. The behavior of the adversary changed, it evolved. They had to ditch their old techniques and tools and send things offshore because the friction, because of the the deep platforming activities that the socials did. And so I, I think they deserve a lot of credit for up in their game. And then our intelligence community partners and law enforcement also, you know, we, when you make the adversary change their behavior and change your tactics, that tells you that something's working. Now, did we completely cut it out? No, but they were not as successful as, we, as they had been previously. So yes, they deserve, I, I believe they deserve credit. So we, we've talked, Chris, throughout this half hour about, about the importance of putting country ahead of party and the way that uh, you and CISA were able to form a task force that 
spread across the, all the different states and all, all the different party officials involved. So an obvious question for me is, if you were asked by the next administration, headed by a Democratic uh, president, to return to DHS or to serve in some other capacity, would you, would you consider doing that? Well, anytime you get asked by uh, the leader of the free world to come in and take it on an important role, you have to give it all due consideration. Uh, there are a series of other responsibilities I have to balance out, including a family. Uh, so it's it's a it's a uh, there'll be a series of considerations and, and conversations that would have to happen around that. But you know, I'm just uh, I'm I'm just so proud of the CISA team. I'm proud of the fact that. We're, you know, maybe a household name right now and, and for a good reason, for the right reasons. Usually when you hear about CISIS, about something bad happen, uh, I couldn't be prouder of that team. Uh, and and they, they just, uh, they've done such a great job over the last several years. And, and there's a really bright future ahead for them. And do you think that Congress needs to, to consider new legislation that gives additional powers uh, to oversee cybersecurity, infrastructure security. You'll remember, as I do, the, uh, the Cybersecurity Solarium Commission that issued a report uh, back in March calling for significantly greater powers for, for CISA. Is that a good idea? Should Congress take that up? Absolutely. And they already have. If you look at the National Defense Authorization Act, there are several pieces, uh, provisions in there that would give CISA additional authorities for the right reasons and including additional uh, partnership uh, authorities and coordination authorities across the federal government. The NDAA, this year's National Defense Authorization Act, is a must pass for not just for CISA, but for the entire national security community, it must pass. So I have a, a final uh, question for you. Uh, I'm sure it's one that's shared by many of our viewers. I think a lot of us feel we've lived through this period of high anxiety surrounding our elections, uh, almost constant challenges. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, as we think back on this, whether one of our protections was that our system is decentralized, that there is no uh, ability for, for the White House or the executive branch to, to completely dominate the process by which elections are, are administered. You did your part in, in coordinating a task force, but are we lucky that we have a, a, a federal system that we sometimes uh, complain about? I, you know, I'm not sure I'd chalk it up to luck. I'd chalk it up to the founders and federalism and that we are built on a, a set, you know, there are, the states out there that it, they do administer most of what happens in this country. And I think it's a, a good reminder uh, right now of why it was designed that way, or perhaps uh, less about why it was designed that way, but we should be thankful that it's designed that way. Um, and you know, it, it, is, it should not be that an incumbent uh, could put their thumb on the scale from an administration perspective. So I'm, uh, I, again, I couldn't be more honored to have worked with all the secretaries of state and the election officials out there. They're, they're the heroes right now. They're the heroes of democracy. And uh, I, I just, I, I look forward to working with them again in the future. So Chris Krebs, thank you for uh, talking with us. Uh, thank you for what you've been doing to help keep our elections safe and secure. That's all the time we have for our conversation today. Um, join us tomorrow 
uh, at 9 a.m. for First Look. My colleague Jonathan Capehart will talk with Post columnists Dana Milbank and Kathleen Parker about the latest political headlines. Again, thanks to Chris Krebs. I'm David Ignatius, and thanks for watching Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.